Transmission will start in five seconds from now. Five, four, three, two, one, in. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons and whack-ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast especially for you. It's no degree partial. It's a degree Sometimes feel less like Danger Man and more like Rodney Dangerfield. You know what I'm saying? Pray tell why. Because <sighs> I don't get no respect, Glenn. Gilly, is this a thing I don't that you get feel? No, I do feel. I do feel like I have a little R-E-S-P-E-C-T coming my way just a little bit. Just a little bit. Sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me. <laughs> I will attempt to sock it to yeah, you. Because what, what, I, what no, is I, this specifically the I just to? I want you to acknowledge that yep. uh, since we started this show, which did, mm. admittedly, like there was a long runway on this. There was there was a lot of fruitless this preamble. A, this was a Fast and the Furious uh, six long yes. six the one runway. Where they, yes, they calculated. Yes, as I as I once discussed on your other podcast, uh, mm. the various sources that calculated that that runway would have to be like twenty seven miles long for that yep. that sequence sure. to un- yep. unfold. Given, given. But you you must acknowledge that I have been on a rare streak of productivity. Since, uh, oh, absolutely. since we, we, we oh, got this God. going. Glenn, when I said I will run again and I will get my per-mile split comfortably back under eight minutes, what happened? I don't know. I don't know what the, any of that means, but go ahead. Glenn, Keep when talking. I said this show needs to have the greatest theme song with lyrics in the long and varied history of podcast theme songs, what happened? I mean, we got a great theme song is what we got. That batch I know. Glenn, when I said I'm going to eat this entire one-pound bag of pretzels in one sitting while watching Checkmate, what happened? I, I, I assume you ate it. Good good on you. Glenn. I wasn't there. When I said we should get Alex Cox, the writer-director of Repo Man, of Sid and Nancy, of equally worthy latter-day smaller-budget films like Build the Galactic Hero and Tombstone Rashomon, that's that's one film with two titles in it, like Godzilla vs. Kong. <laughs> that is a distinct film made by Alex Cox and I want to say 2017, available on Amazon Prime, the same place many of you are watching your Prisoner episodes. What happened, Glenn? I thought nothing would, but something did. Yeah, we got Alex Cox, Glenn. Yeah, we did. That is a score. You did. You you did, Chris. I, I, this okay. is it. This is Thank all you. you. Thank you. Yeah. Sock it to me, sock it to me, sock it to me. Uh, <laughs> that is a score like the Fugees. That is a coup is. like Boots Riley. Yep. We're going to have Alex Cox on our show, Glenn. Amazing. How do you think we should celebrate? I think we should go get sushi and not pay. I agree. I think we should go do some crimes. <laughs> And then ask me about my relationship, Chris. <laughs> what what about our relationship, Glenn? Fuck that. <laughs> Yay, I love the movie. I love him. Uh yes. Uh we're gonna do it my way. Repo Man, there do. there there is a glorious criterion edition Blu-ray. And that that is just one of those uh, very compelling arguments for why you can't give up your physical media 
the commentary track on it is incredible. Alex Cox is there, of course, but also Cy Richardson, Del Zamora, mm-hmm. two of his regulars, two of his favorite actors. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And Victoria Thomas, who goes on after casting Repo Man to be one of the biggest casting directors in Hollywood. She works on a suspicious number of my favorite movies. If you ask me, more commentary tracks should feature the casting director because they got stories, Glenn. And Repo Man, what can you say? Seminal film. Much like the subject of this podcast, The Prisoner, it had a cultural reach and a a long tail that far exceeded its its commercial impact in its time. Correct? Mm, mm, The number of times I saw it at the TLA in Philadelphia, on South Street in Philadelphia, like the number of times I went and saw a midnight show of Repo Man. Many, 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 many yeah. times. And formative, I mean, formative film. The age difference between us, Glenn, it is not significant. It's not a full generation. It's anything, but not I mean, unsignificant. Right, but I mean, <laughs> it is It is enough that you could have gone to see Repo Man in the theater, and I and I could not. Yep. But Alex Cox, as we have mentioned many times on the show, lifelong Prisoner fan. He watched it mm-hmm. when it was first broadcast in England when he was 13 years old. And in 2017, he published a book, a book I recommend strongly because it speaks directly to our ongoing debate about whether this is an allegory or whether this is a straightforward sci-fi spy story that just got mangled from the presence of not so much too many cooks, but uh, I don't know. Main cook? Contradictory instructions from the single, single cook. The main cook, the, <laughs> the cook who's like, I'm going to leave in the middle of dinner to go cook in another <laughs> restaurant for a little while and then uh, yep. leave you guys to bring in Nigel Stock <laughs> to uh, cook without me for a little while. His book is I Am Not a Number, Decoding the Prisoner. It is unique among the prisoner books that I have read in that rather than being a, a production diary or anything like that, although it does have a lot of interesting behind the scenes material, it posits a solution to the whole enchilada, the whole A to Z, the whole arrival to uh, Ice Station Z, bruh, <laughs> of the prisoner. He lays out his theory of the case. So as much as I am always arguing that this show is not spoilable, I, I think Alex Cox's proposed solution, he solves the riddle in a way that I, I think is somewhat what's spoilable, and he withholds that solution until the end of his book. It's the last chapter. He's going through the episodes in the sequence that he proposes is correct, which uh-huh. is, with a few exceptions, the production order rather than the, the broadcast order. And, of course, he, he spells out his rationale for why he, he thinks that Checkmate, for example, should be third instead of ninth and, and on and on. He even tells you who exactly he thinks number one is. He and I had a lovely chat about 40 minutes of prisonerology, and certainly with his 40-plus year body of work, I would have been happy to speak to him for much longer and on many more different subjects, but we kept it tight, kept it focused, kept it largely on message, talking about the prisoner, his history with the show. He was very kind. It, it was a pleasure to talk to him, as you will hear. Fortunately, Glenn, you, you were not able to join us for that talk. You had a conflict, but you were missed. So really, the, the only thing I, I want to uh, admonish our listeners about, again, he has a complete theory of the case. He has literal, non-metaphorical, non-allegorical, concrete answers to all of your questions about the prisoners. So if you would rather withhold that until you've gone through all the episodes, if you, if you haven't made it all the way to the fallout at least once, and you think you might resent hearing about things that happen in those episodes before you've experienced them fresh yourself, then I would advise you to pull a prisoner, listen to episodes of this podcast out of order, by which I mean just save the Alex Cox episode for later. Absolutely. It's the only warning I'm going to offer listeners. If you're adults, you can make your own decisions. I just want to make sure you have all of the relevant information. Information. 
information. Nice. Hello, Alex Cox. Hi. I'm so thrilled that you were uh, willing to make yourself available here, and I was I was thrilled to discover your book. We had intended to get our podcast ready for the 50th anniversary of The Prisoner, and obviously we missed that mark by a considerable distance. <laughs> uh, but you didn't. Your book came out right on time in 2017. Just so glad to find something, one from a, a prominent filmmaker whose movies I, I had admired for a long time, but also, you know, that, oh, it was, you. Uh, that it was contemporary, that it was looking back on The Prisoner from this 50-year vantage point. Yeah. That's what it does. As we're going through the episode, it's not the first time that I've seen the series, but it's my first time looking at it in many years. And uh, we keep having these arguments over, over whether the series is intended primarily as, as an allegory, as a fable, as something that would exempt it from more strict rules of storytelling. And what's so unique about your book is that it purports to basically solve the riddle of the show where you're going through episode by episode in the sequence that you recommend, not the sequence in which the episodes were initially shown, and assemble the clues into a theory that gives specific answers to all the mysteries of, of the prisoner. So can you talk about how that premise came about? What made you want to solve the riddle? Well, I think... I mean, any, any, you can always figure things out, or not always, but often you can figure things out by creating a timeline, which is why when the mainstream media want to obfuscate things and ignore the reality or the causes of certain events, a timeline is never part of the equation. And a timeline for the prisoner, for me, would be the episodes in the order in which they made them. Because I think at the outset, everybody's take on what the prisoner was about and who the prisoner was, was quite different from what it was halfway through and what it was by the end. And partially that has to do with the shadow of danger man, of secret agent man, hanging over the beginning. That's how Magoon got the series on in the first place, was by his collaboration with George Markstein, um, the story editor, and, and the other guys, who, all of whom had worked on Danger Man. So it was reasonable to believe, and I think that Lou Grade, who paid for the series, believed these were the further adventures of the spy, John Drake. But as the series progressed, McGowan and Mark Stein became estranged, viewed the series very differently, and at the end of the first tranche of Prisoner episodes, Mark Stein left, and then it was down to McGowan and his collaborator David Tomlin to finish the series and say what it had all been about. So I think it was a process of discovery for the filmmakers as well, and hence the timeline, hence looking at the episodes in the order in which they were made. You recount in your book all of the occasions on which um, Magoon would, would fire a director who'd been, been hired for an episode, and the, you know, the early group of directors like Don Chafee and, and you know, his collaborators uh, from, who were holdovers from, from Danger Man had all gotten burnt out and, and left after that initial block of 13 episodes. 
Um, so I don't think he he didn't intend to be the sole writer director, right? Even though there are a few episodes on which he does have credit under his own name, and then a few others where he has a pseudonym. Uh, you know, as the uh, sometimes he's Patty Fitz, the, the writer. Sometimes he's Joseph Surf, the the director. But uh, this process of going along and, and realizing that your vision is not compatible with that of the people you've hired. Yeah, and he did do, I mean, he did some pretty terrible things to his directors. I mean, he would, you know, he would hire a director and then fight with the guy on day one. And then the director would be kind of like shaking and, and one of the ADs would come up and say, your car's here. And the director would go, what, what? And, oh, Mr. McGoon said you weren't well and you needed to go home, so your car's waiting for you. And like, he was a ruthless and, and crazy person. But um, obviously he felt that he knew best. And that, in a way, I think is why he chose kind of second-rate directors. Not to be rude, um, but they weren't like the first rank of directors. He didn't go out right. to... Lindsay Anderson or Ken Russell or Mike Lee and say, direct me an episode. You know, I mean, he really did pick guys who who did the fill in bits between the monsters in Ray Harryhausen movies. Um, so <laughs> and I think partially that was to reassure Lou Grade again that this was a kind of a mundane TV show. But also it meant that he could dominate the thing entirely. Mark Steen did use the word megalomania to describe McGowan's state of mind. That I mean, of course, they, they had a very acrimonious falling out. But this has been my, my inference. When I, when I go episode to episode, I'm noting on, on each of our podcast episodes the where in the sequence you indicate that the episode of The Prisoner that we're discussing should fall. But we are we're going by the, the sequence in which they appear on Amazon, where you can stream them now. And, and yeah, and it's quite natural that from the point of view of the um, the television stations who also wanted to sell the series as um, the further adventures of Danger Man, that they would put Chimes of Big Ben number two, since it contained one of the series regulars from Danger Man. So you can understand right. why they they tweaked the order of episodes in that sense and also I mean with the exception of the Leo McKern episodes you can say that the episodes are freestanding and you can alter the order of the episodes without without damaging the the enjoyment of the series well that's been a revelation to me on on this revisit you know one I, I had not understood the degree to which this really was Magoon's passion project when I first saw it I think I thought he was just an actor didn't understand that he was really the creator behind the whole series but the, the, the fact that Once Upon a Time was so early in the sequence, number six, funnily enough, uh, <laughs> I, I just had no idea. I mean, there was all this ambiguity about how many episodes there would be, how many series there would be. Um, and, it, and it's been suggested that Once Upon a Time was meant to be the cliffhanger for the end of the first series. Well, it does give us the title of our, our show, which is a degree absolute. My partner did not like my first suggestion, which was unmutual. <laughs> I don't know. Which one do you think would have been better? That's a good question, actually. I, I um, <laughs> boy, I wish they had re they'd kept the idea of unmutual a little bit longer through the series, because one of the aspects of it being freestanding is that a lot of stuff which is raised in one episode then gets dropped in subsequent episodes. And I think the idea of 
villages being on mutual was a very interesting one. It would have been nice to see that maintained in the later episodes. So maybe you're better to go with degree absolute. Well, one of the things that's a, a consistent theme of the discussion that we're having here is, is trying to sort out how many of the elements of the show that I love are happy accidents, are the, the result of Magoon and Markstein butting heads, or of Markstein failing to pass on to various screenwriters, Magoon's directives about no romance and things like that, you know, and how much of it is intentional. My love of the surreal feeling that surrounds the show lends one to just excuse all kinds of storytelling problems. It's frustrating for a critic when you can see things that, that just contradict or seem to contradict themselves. You argue in your book in many cases that what appear to be contradictions might not be. But certainly the episode, the episode in which Nigel Stark plays McGowan completely contradicts the other episodes because when Stark shows up in London, he's got a girlfriend and he's like, you know, and she's the, the daughter of the head of MI6, you know, and... and so, yeah, but that, that, you know, there's none of that in any of the other episodes. Yeah. And they kiss. <laughs> <laughs> the, the way he kisses her, it's like he's making up for the fact that Magoon would not touch a woman on camera. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Although only in series. Magoon's point was that he wasn't a prude. He, I mean, in, in, tele, in, in movies, he, you know, he, he, he had girlfriends and did terrible things to women and stuff. Right. But, in, but in the series on television, he felt, and it was true at that time. I mean, this series, you know, this, this series could have been playing at five o'clock in the evening. Your granny could have been watching it, you know. And so he thought right. that the aesthetic, the moral aesthetic of television was different, of from, broadcast television was different from the moral aesthetic of films. So I, I think that I think that that Mark Steen was wrong to call him a prude. It was just that McGowan felt for TV things should be done differently. Now I'm, now I'm forgetting the title of the the documentary made by the the man who interviewed him for the BBC in the 80s, and then had other footage of McGowan that had just been unreleased until 2017. Um, in my mind, that's what it's called. In my mind. Yeah, that's a good documentary, isn't it? And they got all the drone footage of Port Merion as well, which looks so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But where Magoon refutes the suggestion that he's a prude. And of course, what that did was it opened up incredible opportunities for casting because then they didn't have to be a regular girlfriend. And yet, yet there were still women actors that needed to be incorporated. And so they became, they had agency, you know, and a lot of characters that were written by the authors as men were women um, when Rose Tobias Shaw had finished casting. Just getting Mary Morris instead of Trevor Howard. I, I love Trevor Howard, but that's a that's a great switch. I mean, her she is one of my favorite number twos in Dance of the Dead. Yes, yes, she's great, isn't she? And she had the I think she had the Peter Pan outfit from another from another show. <laughs> you know. Yeah, she I she had done a Peter Pan stage show in in the forties. I thought I read. Uh, that's what it was. Yeah, yeah. You mentioned in your, in your book your frustration with the slow pace of a lot of contemporary television. You used the example that more happens in McCabe and Mrs. Miller than in a season of Deadwood. It's true. And I mean, Deadwood, and Deadwood is, a, is, is a good episodic series, but there's a lot of, or, or The Wire. I mean, there's just a lot of subsidiary characters who in a movie would get like three or four minutes of screen time. But in Deadwood and The Wire and other series because they have to fill up a lot of episodes these subsidiary characters who perhaps aren't so interesting get given entire episodes to themselves and and because they're just filling up time you know fill space right. mcgowan 
supposedly told Lou Grade, I've got ideas for seven episodes here, and Lou Grade said, I need 26 or whatever it was, and Magoon has lamented that he felt like he was having to dilute the concept to make more episodes. But looking at it now, it still seems like this is a series that could have sustained itself longer than it did. Certainly if Magoon yes. was, was willing to be more of a collaborator than he ultimately was. Ju- ju- when he said things about it, I wouldn't necessarily, I would take them with a grain of salt because he also said that everything you need to know about the prisoner is contained within the series. And so I would go with that. And then when he said, oh, well, there really only should have been seven episodes. How did he know? He didn't know how many episodes there should be at the beginning <laughs> of the series because he didn't know yet what it was about. Yeah. Can you imagine the, getting your opportunity to make your passion project, but the one resource you don't have is time. He had plenty of money, but had to do it all very quickly. I mean, that might be a way for us to transition into talking about your career, where you you found all kinds of alternative ways to finance projects, um, to develop them over over years. I was able to just watch Tombstone Rashomon last night, which oh, I was God. delighted to oh, see is, is is also on Amazon Prime. And I and I hope I'm not picking your pocket by watching it on Amazon Prime. Oh, I mean, you know, the filmmaker never sees any money anyway. I mean, the film where all that money is disappeared away. I wonder if if you, as as someone who has remained prolific. You know, an imaginative through the decades since you had your, your early successes. You look at someone like, like Patrick McGowan, who had an opportunity when he was 39 or 40 years old to make this enormous, well-funded project, after which he moves to California and doesn't quite retire, but he does a series of what you called two-speed performances in movies here and there and shows up in a few episodes of Columbo, but he does not continue to have a career of the sort of weight that it appeared he was destined for. Yeah, and I think the thing was because he was a big star in England. He was the most highly paid and popular actor in English television, but that didn't translate to the United States, even though he was born in New York. You mentioned a few minutes ago that various episodes will introduce a piece of technology that after it, it fails to break number six in that episode are never heard of again you know i'm thinking of speed learn in the general or the fact that yes. in a b and c which which you refer to as the weakest episode we have both dr- some kind of dream viewing technology and this drug developed by number 14 that allows the subject to be influenced somehow by video or film that you're projecting into their brain um, yeah and I contrast this with something like Star Trek a, a contemporary show but I mean they have the transporter beam they have warp drive these fictional technologies recur. I think that's another thing that makes the prisoner feel more like a fable. What if this was a real thing? And, you know, any one of these technologies on its own could have the potential to change the world. But in the prisoner, it only seems to exist as a way of breaking down number six. And when it doesn't work, they just put it to the side. Yeah, and also because if you think about Star Trek, I mean, that was presumably worked out in considerable detail by uh, Gene Roddenberry and his collaborators. So they knew at the outset before the series began, they knew what those elements were going to be. They knew that the Starship Enterprise would be in every episode, that there'd be those transporter beams in every episode, that in theory, you know, we will never intervene in alien lifestyles. And then of course, in every episode, they intervene in alien lifestyles. And, <laughs> yep. and so there was a, there was a plan, a, a, a detailed right. Bible. Um, and the Bible for the prisoner was quite minimal and written by Mark Stein. And a lot of writers say they never saw it. Yeah, yeah, and then they never saw it anyway. Um, but Mark Stein would tell them. So Mark Stein would tell them one thing, but, but McGowan was thinking something else, you know. So, so right. it's a very, you know, the ferment of it is fascinating. 
the struggle because obviously Mark Stein had very strong opinions and and yeah. thought he knew what the series was about, but McGowan was McGowan. McGowan was a, a character, you <laughs> yeah. know, and he he had his moods and he 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 believed in it passionately. He lost interest in it, you know. I mean, he found his interest again. It's it's a it's all about McGowan, isn't it? Well, that seems like such a shame in retrospect to be given an opportunity like this. And, and as you say, he lost interest. He went off to America to make Ice Station Zebra before the series was even done. And it was apparently displeased with Do Not Forsake Me, Oh My Darling, the show that had been made without him in, in his absence. And Well, I think, I think partially that's because, as Nigel Stock said, Nigel Stock had observed McGoon's style of acting and had imitated it. And, but you don't see that in, in the episode. So I think when McGowan came back and he saw the episode, he goes, that's coming out and that's coming out. We're not gonna have that, you know, because here was Nigel Stock, very talented and professional and underrated actor, who's just kind of done a mashup of McGowan, you know? Right, that episode is not a good showcase for Stock's talent. But, but it is in a way, it is in a way because, because Stock's genius was, because you know, I grew up watching him in Sherlock Holmes. And I mean, anybody can play Sherlock Holmes. It's a gift, you know. Whoever it is, you just stick Ian McCallum or Christian Bale or, or Peter Cushing or Basil Rathbone. I mean, at least P Peter Cushing and Basil Rathbone look like Sherlock Holmes. But I mean, you, you can't fail if you're a decent actor to, to play Sherlock Holmes well. Whereas to play Dr. Watson is a thankless task. Right. And Stock did it brilliantly thinking about William Goldman used to write these Oscar commentaries in Premier Magazine and, and he argued in one of them that uh, it was Tom Cruise who should have won an Oscar for Rain Man not Dustin Hoffman because playing the straight man is, is harder than the more flamboyant character. That's really true yes to play a straight man is much more work than to play an eccentric. So you were counting in the book, watching The Prisoner when it was first broadcast, you were 13. Did, had you watched Danger Man before that? No, no, I had never been interested in Danger Man. Um, no, I mean, I watched The Man from Uncle. <laughs> I watched The Man from Uncle. Okay. Um, but I never, I didn't watch Danger Man. Do you recall how and when you discovered that uh, the sequence in which they had been shown was, was not their intended sequence? I, I was about the same. I mean, I saw The Prisoner first when it was rerun on cable in America, but I was about the same age you were. I was about 13. And I, I think the revelation that I was seeing them in the wrong order would have broken my brain. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I don't think I even thought about it. And then gradually, and then over time, you know, when, because The Prisoner was so popular and so, like, became a cult. There was not one, but two prisoner appreciation societies, six of one and the unmutual, you know, who were at war with each other in terms of their interpretations. So then it became apparent that, oh, well, the episodes, even though in theory they were all freestanding, but the episodes actually weren't necessarily meant to play in the order in which they did play. And then it became, you know, a question of trying to work out, well, what order were they made in? And, and did it make a difference? Yeah, certain things were just beyond McGowan's control. I mean, certainly McGowan would not have, even with, with all the influence that he had at the time in England, he would not have been able to control the order in which CBS in America wanted to, to broadcast these episodes. But um, No, and both the, Ameri know. the first American screening and the first uh, French screening, they omitted um, Living in Harmony. Uh, just I think because it must have seemed so strange that all of a sudden that famous title sequence has disappeared and it's a cowboy movie. 
it's asking a lot of, of an audience. Oh, um, I don't really think so. I think it asked a lot of the media gatekeepers who are inevitably uh, conservative and very, very stupid. I, I, I think the audience could have dealt with it. There are so many fan forums now, Twitter and Reddit, and ways for the audience to communicate with one another as they're experiencing a show new. As you say, there were fan appreciation societies, there were newsletters and things, but it, you know, it wasn't this instantaneous exchange. Like the, oh, no, and those, and those fan clubs came decades later as well. It wasn't, at ah. the time, there was nothing. There wasn't media about media the way there is today. Well, we, we did sort of see what, what a contemporary version of, of The Prisoner would look like. Did, did you ever see the 2009 reboot with uh, Jim Caviezel as number six and Ian McKellen as number two? No. <laughs> no, I didn't bother. <laughs> yeah, no, we're, we're going to get to it. I saw it at the time. I have not revisited it in the subsequent 12 years. I don't recall liking it very much. Again, I mean, so much of what draws me to the series now is purely aesthetic. I mean, one, I, I love that era of spy fiction. I mean, I was born in the late 70s, so it naturally seems a little more exotic than it might had I been there for its, its, its birth. Oh, it was incredibly exotic. There was nothing like it because it had been Danger Man and there'd been Man from Uncle and Get Smart, you know. Um, all of that stuff was in, the, was in the frame already, you know. And then The Prisoner came and it was, boy, else. Yeah, and I kind of love all of it. I mean, I love the Bond films of that era too, even though they, they philosophically could not be more... Well, he turned down, he turned down the role um, of James Bond. Uh, uh, they offered it to him before they offered right. it to... Um, uh, the original Bond, you know, it was going to be it was going to be Magoon, but he didn't want to play it. Yeah, there are so many other pop cultural things that were originated in the '60s. All of the Marvel comics characters, you know, Star Trek, Mission Impossible, I'm, that have been just continually updated for 50 or 60 years now. Aside from that one-off, unsuccessful reboot, The Prisoner has largely been exempt from that, except for the fact that I first became aware of it when there was a comic book series in the late 80s that was a, huh. a sequel. Do you think The Prisoner could or should be updated successfully, or is it it's so inherently of its time, channeling the anxieties of the Cold War of the 1960s that we're, we're better off just... just well, I mean, it, given that we're in a new Cold War now, which is far more dangerous um, than the previous one, you could make the case that The Prisoner would be an excellent thing to revisit right now. But the problem is, because we're in a Cold War, everything is propaganda. You're not going to see the Americans or the British make a pro-Russian film or a film in which the Russians are, are portrayed as decent or as equivalent even. You're going to get that John le Carre nonsense, you know, every episode ends with the Russians doing another horrible thing. And you're going to get your Mission Impossibles and your James Bonds and stuff, and it's all propaganda against Russians, Chinese, third world. The genius of The Prisoner was that it wouldn't buy into that. There's Leo McKern's first episode where he points out that it doesn't really matter who we are, we who are trying to pick your brains for information, because... The two sides are essentially the same, and the village is the ideal world, whichever side of the Cold War divide you're on. So the, the prisoner had a take on the Cold War and on international politics, which was unique in British television. 
and then with the the chimes of Big Ben having been shown second, we're getting that McKern observation. Yeah, yeah, and you just you know, and and you, and even then you're thinking, well, who are these guys? When they're going back, where are they going back to? Are they going back to London or are they going back to Moscow? You know, and we find out in the end of the series that they were going back to London, but. It didn't have to be that way. Yeah. It could have been the opposite because as McKern observes, both sides in the Cold War, especially less so today, um, but both sides in the Cold War were essentially the same. Yes, well, not quite all of the violent action-adventure entertainment I grew up loving was right-wing propaganda, just, just most of it, <laughs> which brings me to my next question. I only just learned when I when I uh, saw a Nathan Rabin interview with you from about 20 years ago, where you you mentioned that you had been asked to direct The Running Man in 1987, the the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie set in the terrifying totalitarian future of 2017, I think it was. But because Walker was in production at the same time, you you had to pass on that. Now I certainly that seems like the correct decision. Walker being a a personal film that only you would have made, and and obviously they would find someone else to to direct the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. But as someone who badgered his dad into taking him to see The Running Man when I was about 11, I think, I would have loved to have oh, seen Oh, I thought it was quite good, The Running a, Man, actually. I thought it turned out okay. It's been a little while, but I, I mean, I certainly Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen it either since it came out. Certainly, I remember... It, it certainly did anticipate the sort of cruel reality TV culture that has certainly come to pass and the, and the merging of entertainment and totalitarianism probably doesn't get enough credit yeah it'd be interesting to see it again because i it was it's it's been such a long time but i remember i enjoyed it when i saw it and robocop as well you were i think we can agree oh no i yeah no it's fantastic no i was asked to direct robocop too but it was it had an extremely right-wing script i mean it was like very very hostile to like the poorest Mm. members of society uh it was written by frank miller who's like extremely yeah. right wing and and I just felt like it was intolerable oh, of course I rem- um, yeah I, I remember reading about that in fanzines at the time how there was this whole uh, like anti yeah yeah no it's I mean the, the Anne Randians have found their way into the mo- well they were probably always in the movie business but but um, yep <laughs> My uh, podcasting partner, Glenn, and I, we talked before we began looking at the show again, how we were both sort of afraid, without having seen it recently, that we were going to find this Verandian subtext to the prisoner with its uh, worship of the individual and, and all of that. Um, I don't know if the episode's... Oh, I th- no, but I think on the contrary, it's very, I mean, it's very critical of number six, because number six is kind of like a, a squirrely character. Um, I mean, given the opportunity, he yeah. always tries to, you know, involve himself in the village infrastructure. You know, he stands for in an election to be number two. You know, he buys into the numerical sequence entirely, even while ranting and raving how he's an individual and a free man, etc. But he never uses his own name. And on more than one occasion, he becomes a part of That's- the village infrastructure. And I think in the final episode, um, if you view it as a sort of a ritual the ritual conclusion of the village and the purpose for which the village has been created, he plays his part in the ritual by firing that rocket. And, and so I think he's implicated. And, and, and on those occasions when he, there's, there's a couple of occasions where he just rants at people and says, now you are free, now you are free to go, rise up. 
But why the heck should they? Just because there's this ranting guy telling them they're free, you know? <laughs> so it's it's interesting. Right. Yeah. It's more complex, and I, and I don't think... Yeah, it's hard to say what it represents or what his philosophical point of view is. And as he says, when he at the end of the show, you know, when he gets everything, when he gets his house back and he gets a butler and he gets his car back and a whole bunch of money... Um, he's still prisoner in the final credits of the film. Yeah. And so it's complex. And he's beaten in a way. He's defeated because he's just it, incorporated it back into the system which he had escaped. And Leo McKern goes back to his day job in the yeah. House of Lords. I will use the adjective complex instead of, of incoherent, since, again, you, you argue in your book that if we, at least if we take Do Not Forsake Me out of the equation, then what remains is... Pretty much, I think coherent. it is, yeah. But uh, it just seems to me that so much of what I, what I love about the show, what has given it this, this staying power, seems to be the result of all these collisions, all these tensions between McGowan and, and Mark Steen, lack of you know, agreement over whether we were making basically a spy adventure story with fantastical elements or an allegory about individualism and, and surveillance and free will. And, or a story, or a like story I, I, about kidnapped scientists who are working on the British moonshot. As you say, yes. <laughs> I always say, I mean, the, the, the prisoner is not spoilable. I think we have a great oversensitivity about it. Oh, yeah, because the other thing now, is, it's only, whatever we say yeah, about yeah. it, it's only our opinion. No one can have the final word about the prisoner. Not even McGowan had the final word about the prisoner because he said, I'm not going to no. say, go back and look at the episodes because all the information that you need is contained uh -huh. therein. Or uh, as Leo McKern said, it, it means what yeah. it is. Going down through your filmography... You've never shied away from using surrealism. I actually had put on the commentary track on my Repo Man Blu-ray the other night, and I don't remember exactly at what point of the film it was when Michael Nesmith said, Alex, we can safely say at this point this film is, is nonlinear. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, there, there's a film where people love its idiosyncrasies. Everything that's weird about it is, is why people remember it and love it. You know, and you've made other films like Walker where the deliberate anachronisms and surreal elements were not as, as warmly received, at, at least going by the, by the reviews. I mean, I'm reading the reviews that it got at the time, which is probably not a fair way to evaluate the way the film has lived on in, in subsequent decades. It, it, it just strikes me that that's a similarity with The Prisoner, where we have certain episodes that balance allegory and narrative and surreal and naturalistic elements all in a kind of harmony, and others that just That's failed. interesting, though, because I'm not sure it is an allegory. I, I, I treat it as just a, a series of events, mm -hmm. things that happen. And I think that everything that happens in The Prisoner is real. I mean, not in... In, in absolute reality terms, but in terms of its own reality. Everything that happens is, is really happens, with the exception of that contradictory episode, which contradicts the other ones. And so I don't necessarily view it as an allegory so much, uh, or, or even as a surrealist piece, so much as a story. But it's a story that might have been written by Philip K. Dick, you know, if he had written right. a television series. There was that sort of boom in adapting his stories for cinema in the 80s, and that was another Arnold Schwarzenegger and Paul Verhoeven project uh, after, after Running Man that uh, eventually came out. Before I, I, I let you go here, can you just talk about the origin of the book? Did you say in like 2015, oh, 50th anniversary is coming up, I have something to say about this. How did you decide I, I want to 
publish my unified theory. Well, I have a very nice relationship with um, a publishing company in England called Old Castle. And they have a subsidiary called Camera Books. I've been quite fortunate when I've suggested ideas to them that quite often they're, they're receptive. And in this instance, I guess, I mean, I've always wanted to, to write about the prisoner and to, to try and make sense of it. But the benefit was that uh, also that uh, this company network really did a wonderful job of coming out with um, the boxed sets, with the additional elements, all the script, or not all the scripts, but many of the screenplays have been scrupulously retained. Yeah. And some of the, uh, the shooting schedules, the call sheets, incredibly valuable stuff to understand how the process developed. And so I think that was the thing. It was, it, there came a time when there was enough information that one could attempt the sort of analysis that I did. And and that coincidentally happened in the run-up to the 50th anniversary of the series, so it's very fortuitous. I have that network Blu-ray set, which appears to be out of print now. And I'm, you know, so I'm trying to be wary of, even though I'm, I'm citing those resources and, and the, uh, the documentary that's included there, Don't Knock Yourself Out, on, on the podcast, I'm trying to remember that people who are just streaming the episodes don't have access to but they can resources. find but then but even better I, I they can find they a used copy on eBay for like 10 bucks you know so yeah I hope that they will thank you so much for talking this is this is so kind I'm, I'm so so no glad it's a pleasure I'm this. so glad you're doing this podcast and talking about all the episodes because I think we can't talk about them enough they're they they are just tremendous and and really worth discussion in detail so thank you and, and they, they look so great now. I'm so glad they were shot on 35 millimeter film so that they look a lot better than things that were shot in the 80s. Uh, yeah, and that was the genius of Lou Grade because when, when McGowan went to him, he said, okay, you can do it, but it has to be shot in color on film. And in doing that, he future-proofed the series. Alex Cox. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. much for having me and be seeing you. <laughs> Be seeing you. All right. All right. <laughs> Cheers. Goodbye. Thank you. Wow. That was a treat. My thanks once again to Alex Cox for a lively and illuminating and very fun conversation. His book is I Am Not a Number, Decoding the Prisoner. You can find him at alexcoxfilms.wordpress.com. Write him there if you have something to say. Maybe he'll answer you. That's how we found him. You can watch his recent film from 2017, Tombstone Rashomon, on Amazon, where many of you are watching The Prisoner. And if you haven't seen Repo Man ever, or if you haven't seen it in a while, do yourself a kindness. Played played a shrimp. Played a shrimp. I love that movie. I haven't seen it in forever. I need to go back and watch it. There's never a bad time. Radiation. Indeed. Radiation, radiation, radiation. (laughs) Next up, we've got many happy returns. Till then, Glenn, be seeing you. Be seeing you. Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me, Chris Klemick. I wrote our goofy theme song, which was then arranged and beautifully performed by my dear friend Casey Aaron Clark, singing and playing keyboards, and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion, with Marcus Newstead on the bass. Check out Casey at CaseyAaronClark.com and or VitalVoiceTraining.com. 
Jonathan's band Daybringer is on Bandcamp. You can find them there. Write to the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at Gmail. You can tweet us at not a number pod. Rate, review, and subscribe to our show on Apple or Stitcher or whatever platform you use to hear it. You know, just last night, Glenn was saying how pleased he's been with the progress of the early months of the Biden-Harris administration. In fact, he said he's resumed his monthly donations to the Democratic National Committee. This is a dreamy party. From his lips to your ears. It's no degree partial. It's a degree absolute. Absolute.